Great. Okay, so we're reading from Genesis chapter 18 from verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I found favor in your, in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, grab three sears of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. The next Bible reading is in Hebrews, that is chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. That is on page 1,209. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children, because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Our final reading is in Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, which is on page 21. The birth of Isaac. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he has said, and the Lord did to Sarah, for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah had become pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to, to the son Sarah bore him. When the son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him 
a son in his old age. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray today that you will open up our hearts so we may receive your word. I pray that we have faith in your timing and in your judgment. Thank you that you are a God of promises and you fulfill them. I pray for Pastor Mike as he comes to preach the word and I pray that you give him the grace to speak the word so that we are touched by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, ladies. Um, Please do keep your Bible open there. Before I speak, I just want to mention one more thing. This month is actually in the borough of Kingston, Disability Month. There's a particular emphasis on understanding. Hold on, Kush. Don't jump the gun. I haven't said that yet. Uh, Life group, all of our life groups are studying material in the Bible related to what it means to be human, which means to be made in the image of God, what that means. Uh, what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made, even from the womb. And next Sunday at King's Church here, we will be having a special Sunday called Ability Sunday, in which a whole wonderful range of people are going to take part uh, and and bless us. So do come next week and look forward to that. One little uh, announcement. This Wednesday, we have a special treat. We have a visit to the King's Center from a lady called Sue Ansari, who's a local counselor. She's a Christian. And she is the disability champion for the borough of Kingston. And she'll be sharing about her role and bringing a charity with her. So this Wednesday, 10.30 in the morning in the Fraser Chapel, all invited. Do come along. I'll be going to that. And I'm really interested in what she's going to say. Okay, back to Genesis. We're in the story of uh, Abraham. and We've been in this for uh, a couple of months now. And here we are coming close to this amazing miracle birth. Jack Lewis was born in Belfast in 1898. He was a very brilliant student as a young man. He went to Oxford University. He got a triple first-class degree, which, if you don't know what that is, it's almost unheard of. It's like getting three degrees all at the same time at the best. He was quite brilliant. He was an atheist, but he slowly and reluctantly embraced Christianity. He was influenced by a friend and colleague whose name was J.R.R. Tolkien. You might know Jack by his formal name, C.S. Lewis. He wrote this, In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else than an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here distinguished from happiness, and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has one characteristic and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced joy will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange joy for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Lewis was onto something. We all want a deep, abiding joy in our lives, and we seek it in pleasures. We die for lack of joy. Lewis said that he tried to find joy through sexual experience, and he learned that that did bring pressure for a while, but it was not the deep joy he was looking for. He said, you might as well offer a mutton chop to a man who is dying of thirst 
as offer sexual pleasure to the desire I am speaking of. This is what our hearts really crave. We all want a deep, consistent, abiding joy that stays with us through all the changing scenes of life. We're all seeking it. We seek it in a thousand different ways, a thousand different places. We're all longing to find a spot in life, a a, a theme where we can find joy and stay there as long as possible. But it is so elusive. No sooner you grasp joy, but it seems to slip away. And so we are disappointed by life. And some are so deeply disappointed that their life has lost all its sweetness. It has no taste anymore. So where can we get joy? In this passage from the Bible, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, we learn that joy comes as a gift from the living God, who is all-knowing and all-powerful. And we also learn that believing in God, faith, is a fight, not a walk in the park. We've got three points today. The first one is disappointed by life. Disappointed by life. The story begins with Abraham sitting down at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. This is a very hot country that he lives in, so it's kind of siesta time. In the ancient Near East, this is not the time to be rushing around. You know the poem, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. And if you've ever been to Spain or Portugal, you know that is true. Only mad dogs and the English are out in the midday. But at this moment, three men appear. We don't know where they came from. They just seem to appear out of nowhere. Abraham just looks up and there they are. Perhaps he dozed off for a moment. He is nearly 100 after all. He's entitled to a nap. But he doesn't let old age stand in the way of hospitality. Abraham is a model of courtesy here. He runs from the tent door to meet them and he bows low. He then invites them to stay for lunch using the elaborate courtesy of the ancient world. Have a look at verse 3. If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Uh, Hospitality in that world was, was almost a sacred duty. It was one of the great virtues of life. If somebody, a stranger, came to your house, you would do anything to make sure they had a a good time and they were well looked after. And that's what he does here. He's very polite. What he's saying is really something like, oh, please do stay. It's no trouble at all. No, really, the pleasure's all mine. That's how we would say it. He offers them a drink of water, a foot wash, a place to rest in the shade. And in verse 5, he offers them a bite to eat. But that's an understatement because Abraham doesn't just bring out some pita bread and hummus and a few carrots. He prepares a feast. As soon as the men agree to stay, it turns into an episode of Ready, Steady, Cook. Do you remember that program? A load of chefs had to cook, you know, really fast. Maybe they were racing, I can't remember. Verse 6, he hurries into the tent to Sarah. Quick, get three sears of the finest, the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Now this is a lot of flour, an extraordinary amount. He's baking loads of fresh bread, and probably the smell of it would start to come out, and you know the smell of fresh bread, you can't beat it. And then he runs to the herd, and he selects a tender, choice calf, one of the best. Now, this is a real treat. They don't eat like this every day, you know. This is rich fare. You're going to have beef. And in verse 7, he gives the calf to a servant who prepares it quickly. We're still in ready, steady cook. Quick. Verse 8, he gets yogurt and trimmings and sets it all before them. And as a good host would, he stands attentive nearby. He's waiting on them. 
under a tree in the heat of the day. Now, what is the point of all this detail about the food and the preparation? It starts to hint at the importance of what is going on here. These visitors are being treated like VIPs. But at first, we don't know who they are. We, don't, we just sense there's something mysterious about them. You know, they're just sitting in the shade. They don't talk much. You know, they're sitting there. Everyone else is running around like a headless chicken. And they're sitting there quietly. Remember those Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns from the 1960s? <laughs> These people, strangers just walk into town. And everyone's like, who is that? I don't know who it is. He never says anything. He just sort of chews a bit and moves his hat. A tumbleweed blowing down the street. Who are you, stranger? No one knows. The lunch is setting up this atmosphere for when they finally do speak. And one says a very strange question. Where is Sarah, your wife? What an opening remark. That's in verse 9. Where's Sarah? This is strange. How do they know her name? She hasn't come out of the tent yet. How do they know her name is Sarah? It was only just changed from Sarai. Who are these men? How do they know so much? And the answer is given in verse 13. And by the way, this should make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Look at what verse 13 says. Then the Lord said to Abraham, the Lord. You see in our Bible there, it's, it's in capital letters, small capital letters. Now, whenever you see Lord in your English translation in those small capital letters, it can only mean one thing. It is God's personal name. His personal name that he gives to his people. This name was so revered by the Jewish people that they would never speak it out loud because it was seen as so holy. So if you hear an Orthodox Jewish rabbi reading out the Hebrew Bible, he will not say this name. He will replace it with the word Adonai, which means Lord. So what is this name? Do you know, the thing is, we don't actually really know how to pronounce it because it hasn't been spoken for so long. This name is, is, is held in such high regard. For many years, people thought that you should put these consonants together and say Jehovah. But in the last 50 years plus, scholars have concluded it's more likely pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh. This is God's precious personal name. And in our Bible, it's in those small capital letters. In other words... Yahweh, the living God, the one who made heaven and earth, is in a, in, a, in a form, is sitting there, is visiting their tent, and sitting and eating. I mean, that should, make, should, should send a tingle down our spine. Now, there's something mysterious here. In the Old Testament, there's there are a few times where God appears to people in a human form, uh, known as the angel of the Lord. But this angel turns out to also be speaking as God. So it's really a divine appearance. A divine appearance. The fancy word for that is a theophany. God showing up. It's rare and it's awe-inspiring. And that's what's happening here. The Lord has come to speak to them. And he asks a question. Where is Sarah? The Lord has come, not for Abraham this time, but for Sarah. He wants to speak to her. And the whole section is really about an interaction between the Lord and Sarah, who's hiding behind a tent curtain. 
Now, hang on a minute. If this is God, why does he need to ask the question? He clearly doesn't need to know someone to tell him the answer of where Sarah is. He knows all things. But this is not the first time that God has asked a question in the book of Genesis. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, God called to Adam and said, where are you? And God clearly knew the answer. He knew exactly where he was. He was hiding. In chapter 4, verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And God knew exactly where Abel was. He was dead. Cain had murdered him. And when God asks a question then, it isn't because he needs to know the answer. It's because we need to know the answer. God's questions are a way of making us think about where we are and how we are relating to him. So where is Sarah? Okay, on one level the answer is she's just back there in the tent. She's actually listening. But is that what the Lord is getting at? Where is she? In life, in relation to all the things that really matter, in her heart, how is Sarah doing? Where is she now? In relation to God, who called them all those years before to leave their home in Ur, to leave their family and their inheritance, to, to, leave, to sever their roots, to travel in faith to a promised land 25 years earlier. Where was she? For a quarter of a century, God had been promising that she would have a child. Sarah was 65 years old and had always had fertility issues. When she first heard that promise, she is now 90 and well past childbearing. Where are you, Sarah? Really? And just like Adam and Cain, the question is not about her location but about her heart. After those long years of waiting and disappointment, the dry years, where is Sarah now? And we get the answer in the next section because now the Lord makes a specific promise that he will return about this time next year and that she will have a son by then. And she's listening at the tent door behind him. She's crept forward. She's eavesdropping on the conversation, out of sight. Now the text points out that Abraham and Sarah are well on in years at this point. Verse 11 underlines it for us. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Humanly speaking, there is no way that she is having any children. So when she hears this prediction, what does she do? Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? What kind of laughter is this? It is the bitter laughter of disappointment. We know that because of what she says to herself. There's some self-hatred in here. It's cynical. She doesn't laugh out of pride and joy. She laughs because long years of disappointment have taught her not to clutch at straws and so it's a very sad laugh as well. Why does she stay in the tent? We don't know, but in a way, hiding in the dark heightens the drama as God reveals that he knows what she is thinking. And now it is his turn to be astonished because in verse 13, he literally says something like this. Why on earth did Sarah laugh? He's speaking to her. God is amazed because to him, Enabling a 90-year-old post-menopausal woman to conceive 
a child by a hundred-year-old husband is not really that big a deal. He did make the stars after all. So he asks a question, a very important question for all of us to think about. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's a question for you as well. It's a question for us to take home today and sit with for a while in silence. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What do you really think? He is all-knowing. He even knows that she's laughing to herself in the tent behind him, even when he can't see her or hear her. He is all-powerful. He will demonstrate that by providing the miracle baby within a year. And what this is showing us is that if you are disappointed by life, there is ultimately only one place to find hope. If you wish you had joy, there is ultimately only one place to find it. It is to encounter the Lord. To know him, whom to know is life and joy eternal. The one who can change any situation, who can turn disappointment and cynicism and bitterness into joy. But you have to encounter him personally. That's what's going on here. Sarah has heard about the Lord from Abraham. She's got all the information. There isn't really any new information being given here, is there? We've kind of heard it before. But he hasn't come to speak to her before. She hasn't had a personal encounter with the Lord. That's what's going on here. The Lord has come to Sarah this time, not to Abraham. Why has he gone to all this trouble? For Sarah's sake. To reassure her, to speak to her gently to confront her and to bring her to a different kind of laughter. The Lord's dealings with Sarah are so personal here and so gentle. It's really very striking, the difference between this and Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Abraham has a, a personal encounter with God, and it is terrifying. It's awe and wonder and majesty and dread. In Genesis 15, the Lord appears in the darkness as a smoking torch, fire and smoke and a voice speaking and going between dead animals, cutting a covenant ceremony and saying, I will take this on myself. And Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And it's one very dramatic way of hearing from God, isn't it? But God doesn't deal with everyone the same way. And with Sarah, he comes in a person, he sits down for lunch, he asks a question, he hears her, he interacts with her, and very gently he deals with her where she is. God doesn't deal with everyone the same way. There's almost an infinite variety, depending on the person. But you do need a personal encounter with God, friends. You can't rely on your parents. Your parents had a personal encounter with God, and maybe that's why some of you younger people are here today. But you can't live on your parents' faith. You need to know him for yourself. Or maybe some others, you know, you know, you've got the information, you've got a Christian friend, a keen Christian friend, and you're here with them, perhaps they invited you, so good you're here. But you know, you can't coast on your friend's faith, you need to meet the Lord for yourself. That's what this is showing us. We need a personal encounter with God if we're going to find this joy that we all want. God wants that. 
He wants to know us. It's not enough to know someone else who's met him. You need to meet him. And this encounter makes all the difference in the world to Sarah. So we move from disappointed with life to my second point, surprised by joy. Turn over the page, please, to chapter 21 again. Chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he'd said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son Sarah bought him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. So we're okay to have a bit of a laugh about this. Okay? Can you imagine a pregnant nonagenarian? That's a 90s, someone in their 90s. Can you imagine someone pregnant in their 90s? She would be the talk of the town. She would probably need a lot of bed rest. Men would be looking at Abraham with a new gleam of respect in their eye. It's what young people call an OG. Other people would be tutting. These people who have children in later life, it's so irresponsible, you know. Who's going to look after the child when they die? Abraham's carrying on like Mick Jagger. And as for Sarah, she's old enough to know better. You can imagine the prenatal class. Everyone's sitting around working on their birth plan. The door opens and this ancient couple hobble in. Sorry we're late. Took us a while to walk down the corridor. (laughs) And then when Isaac's finally born, imagine the toddler group, the school gate. Isaac, where's your mum? I thought she was your great-grandma. No wonder his name was Isaac, which means in the Hebrew language, he laughs. Yitzhak, he laughs. This name was a permanent reminder of Abraham's reaction when God told him about the baby, and Abraham wasn't the last to laugh. Sarah laughs too, and we must, we must notice the change in the way that she laughed. Back in chapter 18, verse, 20, verse 12, she said, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And that is a far more bitter and cynical and despairing statement than it first appears to us, because the language here is almost self-hating. Worn out is a very negative phrase. This word means useless. Is how she thinks of herself. She says, will I now have this pleasure? And the pleasure is not about having a child. If you think having a child is a pleasure, you are a man. <laughs> Ask any woman here about having a child. This pleasure is, is she's using, talking about sexual delight. So she's really saying, look, we're not having sex. My husband hasn't touched me in years. So I'm really going to have a son? It's it's cynical. And the Lord speaks to her very gently. When he repeats her words, he takes all of the the disdain out of it. He he reassures her. He says, did she laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? That's not what she said. She said, I'm useless. But he speaks to her very kindly and reassures her. And and, and, and now in verse 21, verse 6, she laughs again. But look at what she says. God has brought me 
laughter. What does that mean? She was already laughing before. This is new. This is a different kind of laughter. This now is the laughter of joy. Sheer joy. And we should laugh with her too. She tells us to. She bursts into poetry like when Adam saw Eve. God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. It is absolutely delightful. Now, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the Bible is a, is a kind of pre-critical book full of myths and stories, which unbelievable things happen and everyone turns a blind eye. And we shouldn't fall into chronological snobbery and assume that ancient people were just more gullible and thick than modern people. We need to beware those things. They weren't. The Bible is a book of truth in which unbelievable things happen and people have a hard time believing them, as in this story. Sarah reflects this with her question, chapter 21, verse 7. Who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Who indeed, who would have said it? You know the answer to that question. Nobody would have said it. It's preposterous. It's impossible. And yet, nothing is too difficult for God. And that is what Sarah and Abram have had to learn over and over again. And Sarah now realizes that this God that they have obeyed and followed can bring life out of a dead womb, a God who can bring joyful laughter out of bitter disappointment. God's miraculous grace defies convention and normal natural laws. Isaac truly is a miracle baby. Let's just pause now and ask, does this connect with your story in any way, friends? Is there a place in life where you've just simply given up? Been waiting so long, can't see any hope, feel like you've prayed forever. The heavens are like brass. Maybe if you're honest, there's now some self-hatred, some bitterness. Do you need to hear again that nothing is too difficult for God? That isn't the end of the story because the Bible isn't finished with Sarah. And I have to say, there's something that caused me a bit of a problem. When I read Hebrews chapter 11, this is our third and final point, loved by God. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. By faith. But is that verse really true? Does it look a bit like the writers gilding the lily? No, to my eyes, Sarah didn't look like a great example of faith, did she? Looked like she's almost given up. Or is she a great example of faith? It depends on what you're looking for, doesn't it? She is a great example of faith if we realize that faith is a fight, not a walk in the park. That faith is a struggle. The great Manchester boxer Tyson Fury fought another very, very powerful boxer called Deontay Wilder, the bronze bomber. And Fury was knocked so hard, this guy is the hardest puncher in the world, that he was knocked and his eyes rolled back and he fell onto the canvas and everyone thought he was out. And somehow, at the count of six, he staggered to his feet and carried on and ended up winning the fight. The, the life of faith can be like that. You're just knocked down. You're really nearly out, but somehow God lifts you up again and you get back in there. Faith is a fight. It's a struggle. It's almost never easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be faith. 
But perhaps for someone here, the life of faith is proving much harder than you anticipated. You didn't expect it to be this difficult. Maybe you only made it here just by the skin of your teeth. The fight. Didn't expect this. You know, God does promise us wealth, health, and prosperity, but not in this life. (laughs) It's in the world to come. For now, we walk by faith and not by sight. Joni Erickson was a teenager in 1967. She took a dive. She was very athletic. That this dive changed her life forever. She was paralyzed from the neck down. She never recovered. Her story has been told so often, but there's an important point often not made, one that gives us a vital insight into how God works in our circumstances. Her broken body at first brought bitterness. When she began to confront her paralysis, she was encouraged by some friends to have faith that God could miraculously heal her. After all, nothing is too hard for God. And as she explored this faith, she struggled with this difference. God could heal her, but there's also a faith that God would heal her. Would it take just as much faith to believe that God would heal her spirit without healing her body and use her in his service in spite of her limitations? Now that takes a lot of faith. Doesn't God do a hard thing whenever he uses any one of us in spite of our limitations? And if you told the young Joni Erickson that 30 years in the future she would be an internationally known artist, author of more than 25 books, inspirational speaker at conferences, radio broadcast aired by 800 radio stations, she might have considered that doing that would be a much more difficult accomplishment than God healing her paralysis. She produced records and films and founded a ministry for the disabled, put her in the international spotlight as a spokesperson. Joni's faith that she could be transformed was of far more use to God than her faith that she could be healed. Scholar John Walton writes, we must be cautious that as we accept by faith nothing is too hard for God, we don't begin to dictate for him which hard thing he must do. He tends to have things in mind that go far beyond what we are able to ask or even think. Does that connect with your experience? Nothing is too difficult for God. Perhaps the most miraculous thing about Joni's story was that God transformed her attitude to her circumstances and made her life do something far, far greater than anyone would have expected. Something far greater than an instant healing. Have you been surprised by joy, by God's work in your life, bringing you laughter of a different kind? Have you experienced God giving you meaning and purpose when everything looked so sad and bleak? If not, how are you going to encounter this God? What does this passage suggest? It suggests that we need a miracle baby And his name's not Isaac. If there's anything more miraculous than a 90-year-old mother giving birth, it's this, a virgin giving birth. Jesus Christ, the miracle baby that Isaac points to. And this virgin-born child brought joy wherever he went. 
He brought joy to his mother Mary. He brought joy to Zechariah in the temple, to Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector who found joy in the presence of Jesus and gave half his money away there and then. When Jesus Christ came into people's lives, he touched them and they were surprised by a joy that would never be taken away. And he still does that now. And yet this man who brought joy wherever he went was hung on a cross in a state execution. It looked like the promises of God were all null and void. An epic failure, dead and buried. But God who brings life from a dead womb now brought life from a dead tomb. And Jesus rose again and continues to bring great joy. Is there anything more miraculous and impossible than that you and I could be raised to a new life that will never end? Is there anything more impossible than that you and I could be adopted by God into his family? And yet Jesus has promised both of those things to us. We all want joy. We die for lack of it. Where will we find it? In Jesus Christ, who shows us that God loves us, the all-knowing, the all-powerful. God who brings life from dead situations wants to give you laughter and joy. Let's pray. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Lord, we just thank you today for these stories and for how you speak to us through them, down through the centuries. And we confess we often look, all of us, to the wrong things for joy. We drink from cracked and broken wells and they have left us dry and thirsty. Show us again today, Lord, where to go for living water that will flow and satisfy us. I pray there'll be one person here today who for the first time has personally encountered you and you bring them great laughter. Amen.